Hello, I'm Marie Sneiman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. In this episode, I'm talking to Daryl Brown about years of depression that led to a suicide attempt and how meaningful interventions helped him turn his life around. Today, Daryl says you can have depression and still lead a fulfilled life. Hello, Daryl, and welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful. Hi, Maria. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Daryl, you are from, from Cape Town, which makes me jealous, and you work <laughs> in marketing, but your goal is to become a clinical psychologist. Can you tell us a little more? Yes. After my suicide attempt, I it was a few months before I had my first um, session of talking therapy with a psychologist. And, you know, the first time I spoke to her, I kind of thought that I would speak to her the way I always spoke to everyone, wearing this mask of everything's fine, I'm going to be okay. Um, but within five minutes, she saw right through me. And it was almost as if, you know, I would tell her stories about things that had happened to me. And she knew, um, even without me saying what other people had said to me, how I, that had made me feel. And um, for the first time in years, I felt some hope that I could overcome my depression and that there was someone who really understood and could help guide me through it. And so now I would really like to be able to, to make that difference for other people and to, to help other people in that same way that she helped me. And you've already completed your honours degree. Yes, I finished my honours in psychology in 2019. Um, and I'm hoping to do a master's next so that I can go on to clinical psychology. Um, but the master's programs are very competitive. So um, I'm doing some courses with Lifeline in the meantime, and hopefully I'll, I can be a lay counsellor with them um, and get some actual counselling experience. And then, yeah, once I've built up my experience, I can apply for the master's programmes. Yeah. And Daryl, I saw you speak at media workshops organised by the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. And I also read your story in journalist Marion Scher's book Surfacing about people coping with depression and mental illness. And I can only say that your story is a story of hope. Thanks, Mary. It's, um, yeah, I hope so. I, um, you know, I went through a suicide attempt and many years of depression, um, but I feel, and I still have depression now, I'm still on medication and I still um, have therapy once a month, but I I feel like I'm living a fulfilled life and I feel happy um, because my depression is something that I can manage. Um, and Marion Show's book is really fantastic. Um, there are many other stories um, of other people struggling with different types of mental illness, um, and they're all very inspiring. And yeah, SADAG, the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, invited me to speak at one of their mental health awareness summits, um, which was mostly for journalists, um, just kind of educating journalists about mental illness so that they could report on stories um, responsibly um, and with some understanding. And I made many connections at SADAG there and with many other people who'd been through struggles with anxiety and bipolar disorder and all sorts of things. And um, yeah, I really enjoy my, my association with, the, with SADAG. 
I've been doing some other outreach work with them, some other you know media appearances, and I now I talk to, I go to schools as well, and I speak to to teenagers about mental health because I feel like, you know, teenagers are experiencing all of these new emotions um, that they don't really understand or they don't know what to do with, and teen suicide in South Africa and in the world is becoming um, a real pandemic. And, you know, my depression started when I was a teenager. So I feel like if, you know, maybe if I had understood what I was going through back then and understood my options for help, um, my life could have taken a different path and I wouldn't have gotten to to the point of suicide. But yeah, I think, I think teenagers need to understand this and need to know what their options are. Absolutely, and especially if they can talk or, or hear from someone who's been through it themselves. Yes, I think um, from from the talks that I have given, the teenagers, the kids really relate to to what I, I share, and because it's, I think it's real, um, and I think you know being authentic with them is something that is very important. I know teenagers are quite cynical and. Um, they don't trust adults easily or what adults say. So I think being authentic and being real with them really connects and helps them to relate to what you're saying. And from Marion's book, I know that you had your first suicidal thoughts when you were uh, around grade seven. Could you tell us about that period in your life? I had one kind of best friend in primary school, but he immigrated to New Zealand when I was in grade three. And after that, I never really made any other close friends. Um, and when I was about, when I was in grade six, I started being bullied for being gay. And I had no idea what being gay was. I'd never heard that term before. Um, but I just thought whatever it was, I didn't want to be that because it seemed like something terrible. Um, you know, all the kids were making it out to be something so awful. And I used to... You know, I used to go to, to bed at night and pray that I would wake up as a girl because if I was a girl, then these feelings that I had for boys would be okay. It would be normal. Mm. Um, and, you know, I tried to do whatever I could to, to fit in. Um, I stopped listening to pop music. I stopped dressing well because, you know, if I listened to pop music and if I had a good fashion sense, then that would mean I was gay. So I did whatever I could to, to kind of, you know, make it appear that I wasn't gay and to make me fit in and yeah nothing seemed to to work I kept on being bullied and I just I didn't see a way out of it um but despite despite my depression despite my suicidal thoughts I think part of my personality is just an inherent optimism and I so I always thought okay you know what when I when I move to high school things will be different things will be okay when I move to university, things will be okay. Uh, when I start my new job, when I, if I get more involved at church, um, if I move overseas, all of these things, I kept on pushing the, the benchmark or the, the point for, for when things would be okay because um, after everything happened, you know, I would move to high school and nothing changed. I moved to university and nothing changed. But I still had this hope that you know, if something in my external surroundings changed, then then my depression and what I was feeling on the inside would also change. Um, but obviously that wasn't the case. Yes. And then in high school, you said 
things just sort of remained the same. Yes, I was still bullied for being gay. Um, and I'd kind of come to terms with the fact that I liked boys and not girls. Um, but I still, I never came out and I uh, still tried to, to hide it and pretend that I was straight. Um, but I kept on being pushed around. You know, I would go into the bathrooms at school and um, all of the boys in the bathroom would, would yell and cover themselves up and be like, oh, he's going to look at you. He's going to touch you. And and that was so humiliating for me that I, I stopped going to to bathroom at school at all. I would wait until I, I could get home um, before I went to the bathroom. Yeah. And then uh, in university? At university, things were a little bit different because, um, you know, we were all supposedly mature, but I was still kind of on the outside. And I I was very academic. I thought that, you know, if I could do well at school um, and do well at university and get good marks, then that would make things better. It would kind of balance out um, all the bad things in my life. But I was still kind of an outsider and still bullied a bit um but during that time i also got more involved at church and so that became my focus and then i kind of came to terms with the fact that okay i was gay but i started believing that god could heal me and make me straight and so i um i prayed and i fasted for years for god to heal me and to make me straight but it seemed like the closer that I was getting to God and the more spiritual I became, the more being gay was a part of me. Um, and eventually I, I came out to my young adult pastor and Shane, he was, he was very sweet. He um, was just a few years older than me, um, but he was this very masculine, very Afrikaans guy, you know, just into rugby and everything. And, and he was like, Daryl, I really want to help you, but I have absolutely no idea what, what to tell you or how to help you. Um, you know, I can't relate to, to what you're going through at all. Uh, but he was, he tried to be very supportive. Um, and during that time, I read this book by the president of Exodus International, which was an ex-gay ministry. And they would basically, they organized camps to, to kind of make people straight and to, to train them to be straight. And I read his book and, you know, it was all about how he used to be gay and now he wasn't gay anymore and he had a wife and three kids. And I was like, oh, this is so inspiring. Um, you know, if he can do it, then I can do it. And so I wrote to him and I asked if he had any connections or if they had like a, a campus or something in Cape Town. And he said no, but um, they, do they were affiliated with someone who ran a support group. And so I went, I got his contact details and I went to my young adult pastor um, and I asked him to come with me to meet this guy, just to make sure he wasn't some weirdo. And the meeting was good. It seemed fine. He seemed um, legitimate. And he started mentoring me. And for the first time in my life, I could be completely open about, you know, my, my sexuality, about my feelings, about... Um, the conflict between my spirituality and my sexuality. And I, yeah, we became very close and I developed a bit of a crush on him because 
he he could relate to all of this this stuff and um everything that I was sharing that I had never shared with anyone before um and so yeah about three months after we met um I lost my virginity to this this minister who was supposed to be making me straight um and then after we had sex I I sent him a few messages and I tried calling him um and he didn't respond and then about a week or two afterwards he he responded to me and he said you know I care about you but you know we can't tell anyone about this because it's a sin it's wrong but we can carry on helping each other out this way and that was just the last straw for me and I was like this is bullshit um I and for so long I'd been kind of trying to figure this out on my own um trying to find answers to the questions I had about about my sexuality and about Christianity and I just felt like I couldn't do this in the dark anymore undercover anymore you know um I needed to to be out in the light and to be open about this journey that I was on I needed to be able to ask questions and talk to to other gay people um without fear of someone in the church seeing and gossiping and being like oh did you see Daryl was at this gay club um I couldn't take the the lies and the hypocrisy anymore So after you had come out uh, did things change in a dramatic way After I came out things in my external environment changed a bit but my depression wasn't cured you know I thought okay maybe if I come out then then I'll also finally be able to accept this part of myself and my depression will disappear but I think because I'd been struggling with depression for so long it had kind of taken root inside of me and in my psyche and it had it had altered my development i mean i your brain isn't fully formed until you're 25 years old and for most of for more than a decade um from the age of 12 i'd been struggling with depression and it had changed the way my my brain functions um it had influenced the way my brain and my hormones developed so it needed proper professional um healing i needed medication and i needed therapy but i still wasn't ready to to go that way and i thought you know no no therapist is going to be able to say something that's instantly going to make things better i just need to pull myself together everyone else has problems too and everyone else seems to be dealing with their stuff so why can't i i just need to to get over it and um pull myself together and so i came out and i because i didn't have to worry about people gossiping anymore i started pursuing my my interests that i thought might kind of tip off people that i was gay um for example i got in, involved with the the amateur theater community in cape town and i started working on on shows backstage and and stuff like that so i was able to to pursue my interests more and be more free outside but i still hadn't it wasn't fixing what was going on inside of me and then you decided to go to london 
I went to visit a friend of mine in London. Um, and the minute I got off the plane and stepped into the street, I felt at home for the first time in my life. I felt like I belonged somewhere. And I felt so free. So I thought, okay, you know what, if I, if I move to London, then everything will be okay. Then my depression will be cured because um, I can be whoever I want to be here. And <laughs> it was kind of funny because I, while I was there, I was staying with this friend of mine um, who's a very kind of girly girl, like everything in her room where I was staying was pink, her laptop, her duvet, her posters on her wall, everything. And I came back to Cape Town um, and I think it was the week after I came back from London that I actually came out publicly to everyone. And all the people who knew Kristen were like, oh, Kristen turned you gay with all that pink. Um, but yeah, it was, it was quite a liberating experience. And I had, I had some hope that, you know, if I moved to London, everything would be okay. So I decided to do a master's in marketing um, to continue my marketing studies in London, but it was more about getting to London than about actually getting another degree. And I moved to London and, you know, I um, had my first romantic relationship there, which ended after six months. Um, you know, I'd, I'd thought, oh, I'm going to be the perfect boyfriend and my relationship is going to be perfect. And the fact that the relationship ended was devastating to me. I just felt like such a failure and everything in my life was kind of falling apart as well. I wasn't doing quite as well at university as I had hoped. I was really struggling to get um, a, work, a job in, in London to stay on after my student visa expired. Um, and I felt like I was going to have to move back to Cape Town and move back in with my parents and be a leech of them forever. I felt like I couldn't take a step back into a situation that had kind of been oppressive to me, moving back into, almost like moving back into the closet, um, not because of my parents, but just because of the whole situation that I left in, in Cape Town. And I just... I was exhausted. I was tired of waiting for this one day when everything might be okay. And um, I'd tried everything that I could think of. I'd tried changing jobs. I'd tried changing cities and countries, um, but nothing was fixing my depression and I couldn't wait anymore. I felt like I'd tried absolutely everything and I'd run out of options. Um, and I was so tired. I just wanted to go to sleep and never wake up. Um, and so, I told all my friends in London that I was moving back to Cape Town. I deactivated my Facebook account so that none of them would know I hadn't got back to Cape Town. I reasoned that, you know, I'd been gone from South Africa for a year. So everyone in Cape Town would have gotten used to not having me around. So it wouldn't matter to them um, if I was dead. Um, I thought everyone would be better off without me. And so I gave my landlord a month's notice as well. And I finished my, my master's degree. And then on the day that I was supposed to, to go to the airport, I packed my suitcase and I went down to the nearest tube station. And I sat on the platform and I waited for the platform to be empty. And then when the next train came, I, I jumped in front of the train. Yeah. 
And then you you were not killed, but you lost your legs in that attempt. Yes, in the suicide attempt, I I lost both my legs, um, and I was in hospital for in London for about four months. Um, I was in the trauma ward for about three months. You know, I think I was in a an induced coma for for two weeks. And I still had many surgeries after that to do skin grafts. And they tried to reattach one of my legs on the platform um, after the suicide attempt. But um, once I got to hospital, it became infected. So they had to remove it. And, you know, I'd left a note in my suitcase on the platform with my mom's contact details to say, you know, she's my next of kin. Please get in touch with her um, after I died. But somehow that note got lost. And so no one contacted my parents. I had sent a suicide note to my mom, just explaining everything that I had been feeling and my reasons for for taking my life. But I'd sent it to her work email address, and it was a Sunday afternoon. So I knew that she wouldn't get it until the next day, until it was too late to, to do anything. And so... On the Monday when she read it, she was frantic. Um, and she she also, she didn't have anyone to contact to try and locate me. So eventually she got in touch with Interpol. And I think after about three days, Interpol found me in the hospital. Um, but during that time, none of my friends or family knew what had happened to me, um, if I was still alive or dead. And as soon as she could, my mom got a visa and came to visit me in the hospital. She stayed with someone that she that she knew from church. And, you know, she came and sat with me in the hospital every single day for a month. And I was so angry at that time. I was so angry with myself. Um, you know, I thought, I can't even get this right. I was angry at the universe, um, angry at God. I kind of felt like, like I'd got all the way to, I don't know, to heaven and just been like spat out onto the earth again. And I was, yeah, I was just so angry that I'd lost my legs and that I was still struggling with depression. You know, I kind of thought, um, you know, I was, I was struggling before and now I've lost my legs too. How, how is this supposed, supposed to make it better? How am I supposed to, to deal with this now? And I took out all of my, my frustration and my rage and um, my hurt. I took it all out on my mother, but she just sat there and she took it. She never once shouted back or um, got angry with me. She just supported me the whole time. And then after about three months, I moved to a different hospital to start my physical rehabilitation. And in that hospital, um, it was the first time that I had my encounter with the psychologist. It kind of changed everything for me. But I think a big factor as well that influenced me gaining some hope for the future at that point, again, was also my my physical therapist. Um, Her name was Lauren. And I spent six hours in the gym every single day with her, you know, doing exercises and things. And she was quite close to my age um, and she was so supportive and so open with her life as well and 
we really bonded. Um, and she's, I think she's one of the people I was closest to in London. And we are still in touch. But yeah, she, she really gave me hope and kind of showed me the, the power of relationships and friendships again. Um, you know, I made some friends in London, but I think I was still feeling very isolated. And I think part of that was, well, I think a lot of that was due to the depression because you, you put up all these walls. You don't want people to see your hurts or to see how broken you are. Um, and when, I don't know, when, when you don't let people in, um, it's difficult for them to, to open up to you and to trust you and for you to really get close. And I think many of my friends in London felt that I kept them at a distance, which was never my intention, but it was kind of a consequence of the dark space that I was in. My brain also, depression clouded it. I, I couldn't think rationally. Um, and actually my, my ex, my boyfriend, um, said that you know he felt like he didn't really know me even after six months because I wouldn't or couldn't open up to him. And so my friendship with Lauren kind of showed me again how important it is to to let people in, to let people see you, um, to let people help you because that it makes them feel valued in your life. And yeah, that played a big role in my my recovery. And you had started getting uh, medicine, hadn't you, for the d- depression? Yes. Um, as soon as I got to hospital after the suicide attempt, when I was in the trauma ward, a team of psychiatrists came to see me um, once or twice a week, and they immediately put me on, on antidepressants. But they just kind of monitored my my depressive symptoms, you know, if I was eating and sleeping and um, if I was having suicidal thoughts and they adjusted my dosage according to that, but they never did any kind of talking therapy with me. But I remained on that medication, on the antidepressants throughout my talking therapy later when I was in the rehab hospital and when I came to South Africa. Um, And I'm still on the antidepressant that I was started on in London, but I'm on a much lower dosage now. And it's just to kind of manage my depression rather than to kind of keep me from the brink of of despair like it was then. Mm. And I think it made, you know, many people are scared of going on to antidepressants because they don't want to be dependent on a drug to um, to feel a certain way. But, I mean, if you think of someone with diabetes, they're not ashamed to take their insulin. Or someone with HIV, they're not, they have to take their, their ARVs. So it should be the same with with depression. I mean, if you're if you're sick, you take medicine and you get better. And if you need antidepressants to function and to be the kind of person that you want to be, to be the friend that you want to be, to be the partner that you want to be, why wouldn't you take it? Um, and I think I think in many cases taking antidepressants is the responsible thing to do because it enables you to engage in life, to be productive at work, to have good relationships. Um, And I'm not ashamed of it 
at all. But I must say, my talking therapy also played a huge role in my recovery and still I value it so much because especially at first, I kind of felt like the talking therapy gave me tools to manage my depression on my own. I felt like I was actually learning something and gaining some kind of control over my illness. Whereas the the medication, the antidepressants, you know, I had no control over what they were doing um, or it was just kind of something that I was taking passively. But with the cognitive behavioral therapy that I had in my talking therapy sessions and with the other, you know, approaches that the psychologist had, I, I felt like I was learning tools to, to look after myself and to take care of my own mental health. Um, and that was empowering. Yeah. And I think it, it enabled me to, to feel some sense of independence and agency and productivity again. And what was it like coming home to Cape Town from London after those four months in in hospital? You know, I'd always, even after I'd made friends in the theatre community here in Cape Town and my friends at church, I always felt like I was kind of on the outside of the circle, like I was, like I was kind of tolerated in the group, but I didn't feel like, like I played a significant role in the communities that I was a part of. Uh, but when I came back to South Africa, you know, my best friend had, she'd gone around to to all of my friends, um, even the people that she didn't know, and asked them to, to send messages for me. And she'd written down every single message in a book, um, which I found on my bed the first day I got back from London. And the book was full of messages of love and support and you know, people sharing stories of moments that we'd shared together, um, things that I'd done for them that had meant a lot to them. And for the first time in my life, I I realized that people did actually care about me and that I had played a significant role in their lives. Um, and, you know, that was a revelation for me. I had no idea that that I actually mattered to people. And so it changed the way I, the way I socialized, you know, I really made an effort to have quality time with, with people in my life, because I knew now that, that that wasn't just important to me, it was important to them as well. Um, And that it didn't just enrich me, it enriched them as well. Then you also had to go job hunting, and I suppose at by that time you had gotten used to going around in a, in a wheelchair. So when I started physical rehab, you know, I quickly became accustomed to the wheelchair and to living with my physical disability. And in many ways, it was much easier than actually dealing with my depression because, you know, you ha- you're confronted with your physical disability all the time, every single day. You know, you have to find a way to get to the toilet or to get into the car um, or to move around. And so you figure it out because you don't have a choice. But with my depression, I spent so many years pushing it to the back of my mind and trying to ignore it that it was very difficult to kind of bring it into focus and actually work through it. Um, And that took much longer than, than becoming accustomed to my my physical disability. 
So when I came back to Cape Town, I'd become accustomed to the wheelchair and I had to start job hunting. And at that time, I was still seeing my psychiatrist once a week. And, you know, I knew that in my job interviews, I might have to say, you know, I need an hour off every once a week to, to go to the hospital. And I spoke to my psychiatrist about this and she actually said, don't tell your potential employers that you need that time because you're coming to therapy or that you're doing it for depression. Rather, rather just, I don't know, be vague about it because there's such a stigma around mental health and mental illness that employers don't want to hire someone that has depression because they don't know if they're reliable or if they'll be a good fit in the workplace. Um, and that was also really eye-opening for me. And I just thought, I've been living with the depression for so long. People can still be productive. And especially if, if they're getting treatment, if they're getting therapy and getting, um, if they're on medication, people with depression or bipolar disorder or anxiety can still play meaningful roles at work and be good employees, um, can manage teams. I mean, I managed a team of four people at work and, you know, we can still be productive, valuable members of society. Um, and that was kind of part of, that was part of the reason I decided to start doing what I could to raise awareness of mental health and get over the stigma um, that society has. Because I thought, you know, the only way that we can get over stigma and to kind of reduce that stigma in society is if people who have been through depression and suicide attempts, um, if people like me can be open about what we're going through and still show evidence that we're, we have good relationships, we, um, are productive at work, that we, you know, can engage in communities and society, um, then we can kind of prove to people that there's no reason for there to be a stigma around people with mental illnesses. I mean, this was about six or seven years ago. And I think, I think there is a much wider understanding of mental illness. Um, and there's a much greater focus on mental health in society now. But I think we still have a long way to go. Um, I think many, many communities um, and many sections of the population are still very conservative and don't understand mental illness. Yes, and when someone like you speaks so honestly and from the heart, I think it makes a big difference. Thank you. I hope so. I've been invited to corporate events as well as well at different companies. Um, and I've spoken to their teams of employees about mental health and you know looking after your mental health and things like that. So companies are also starting to take an interest. And I think more companies are starting to take responsibility for the, the mental health of their employees, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. And if someone would, would like to get hold of you, Daryl, where could they? So anyone is welcome to email me. Um, my email address is darylbrown3, that's D-A-R-Y-L-B-R-O-W-N, and then the number three, at gmail.com. 
Yes, and then it's time for your three best tips on singing. So I've always loved singing, but I used to, oh, I used to be very bad at singing. Um, and it was embarrassing for me because I have so many friends in the theatre community who sing a lot. So whenever we would be together and have to sing happy birthday to someone, I would kind of mumble my way through or pretend I was singing just mouth the words because I was like, everyone around me has perfect pitch and they can all hear that I can't sing and that I'm like tone deaf. Um, but just by the way, there is no such thing as tone deafness. And so I, I started taking singing lessons with a friend of mine um, just because I wanted to be more confident when we were singing happy birthday. And it kind of evolved from there. She invited me to, to sing at one of her concerts and I've sung in several of her concerts since then. And I've um, performed in a production of South Pacific at the Artscape Opera House here in Cape Town. And it's just, it's been amazing. I, I love singing. It makes me feel alive. It makes me feel free. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm still by no means an expert, but I've been taking lessons for six years. And so I would like to share some tips for beginners uh, like me who kind of aren't sure of their, their future in singing. So my first tip is just to imitate sounds around you. It doesn't matter what. It could be the, the beeping of a car horn or um, like a car alarm or birds singing or the dog barking, anything, even your, your alarm clock. Um, because, you know, the vocal system is comprised of so many different muscles and uh, components that we have to, you have to kind of explore all of them. Um, we're so limited because we're all scared of sounding bad and there's this I know there's this idea of what sounds good and what sounds bad. And we all have these inhibitions of sounding terrible, but you have to get over that to, to kind of unlimit yourself and open up all the, all your options for you. I mean, if you're tra training for a marathon, you don't just run. Um, you do weight exercises and cardio as well, because that weight, those weight exercises are what give you strength and the endurance to kind of run up hills and um, support your your cardiovascular system while you're running. Um, and so in the same way, you have to exercise all the different components of your, your voice to support you when you're singing. You know, when you're singing, you might not make the sound of a, a car alarm, but you're using some of those muscles. So you need to exercise every part of your voice um, and overcome those inhibitions. Because if you can if you can sound like an idiot at home, barking <laughs> like a dog, then you'll feel much more comfortable singing in front of an audience. My second tip is uh, about something called strophination. So this is something that will help with your breath support and help you breathing. Because so I think um, when you start singing, a lot of people have a problem of just releasing all their breath on the first note or in the first part of a phrase. And so by the time you get to the end of a phrase, you're completely out of breath and you can't reach the notes. Um, so straw frenation is this trick where you, you fill up uh, half a glass of water and you take a straw and you put it in the water and you start blowing bubbles into the water. But the point is to, to vocalize while you're blowing the bubbles. So you can hum through 
scales. Like, mm. And the point is to keep the airflow consistent. So the amount of bubbles should be the same no matter what note you're singing, um, no matter how, whether you're on your first second or your fifth second of blowing bubbles, the, the bubbles should stay the same and your airflow and your volume should be consistent. Um, and this will, will exercise your lungs and it will help you to control um, the flow of air through your mouth when you're blowing bubbles and then when you're singing um, so that you can get to the end of a phrase and still have that have the power that you had at the beginning of the phrase. And then my third tip is about the difference between nasality and nasal resonance. So, you know, many singers, and I was the same, when I started singing, um, you know, I was so scared of sounding nasal. I think many people you know, have this idea that singing with a nasal sound is wrong. Um, but the fact is nasality is a kind of, it's a subjective idea. So it actually has nothing to do with nasal resonance or the, na the airflow through your nasal passages. Nasality is actually caused by raising larynx and squeezing the cords in your voice. So you end up sounding like SpongeBob. <laughs> um, and you know, when I was doing that, I wasn't breathing through my nose at all. Like the soft palate actually closed up the nasal passages. So there was no um, airflow through the nose. It was just the, the larynx, um, raising the larynx. And yet it had a very nasal kind of sound. Nasal resonance, on the other hand, is the airflow through your nose. If you think about, you know, when you're in a big, a big hall or in a tunnel and you say something out loud, it, it has this resonance and it kind of amplifies your voice. Um, and if you harness the power of the the nasal passages, um, you know, the nasal chamber and the, the nasal tunnels, you get that same kind of resonance and it amplifies your voice and it releases the pharynx, it kind of makes it, um, it relaxes it so it doesn't put as much strain on your voice. It makes it easier to reach high notes because it supports the, the cricothyroid muscle um, and it improves the agility and flexibility of your voice and it neutralizes the changes between consonants and the vowel sounds, so it takes pressure off the vocal folds and it just gives this um, richer, more resonant sound. And you can practice nasal resonance by, by going through your scales or um, doing vocal exercises on an M sound, like mm, or an NG sound, like mm. Yeah, accessing your nasal resonance, um, practicing the airflow through your nose, just gives you a much richer, more vibrant kind of sound. Yeah, and we've just got quite a few tips on some fun things to do at home, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I think um, yeah. If you try try making a few noises, you'll you'll find it's quite fun after a while. Yeah, and Daryl, I also asked you to record us a song, which will be uh, featured in a personal article on you on my website. Mariettesneiman.co.za. If anyone wants to see it, they can just put Daryl into the search bar. That will be D A R Y L. Yeah, I didn't see it coming, but you sent me a very poignant song which really touched me deeply. Thank you. Yes, the song is called Dear Anyone, and it was written by a musical theatre composer in America called Andy Monroe. And I chose the song because it just, it's a very, 
um, accurate and poignant description of you know the the state of mind of someone struggling with depression and kind of on the brink of suicide um, and it resonated so much with me because it felt like it was almost written for me it's just it's a very it's a very beautiful song and very raw and authentic and now it's time for your fun question yes <laughs> what is this my question Daryl is if you could be a house pet which bird or animal would you be and what kind of owner would you like <laughs> um first thing that comes to mind is the cat um I'd love to be lazy and have <laughs> soft fur and just be able to crawl around but also um, or lie around the house but also to kind of be a bit of a loner and to diss people when when I feel like it yeah I am a bit of an introvert so I I can't take too much social contact and a cat seems to get away with that without you know offending anyone and the type of owner you would prefer I think I would like a someone with a who's very career focused um so they aren't at home too much but when they are at home um you know they're just kind of recharging and you know, I might call up with them when they're sleeping but we would have a very independent kind of lives yeah you've worked that up perfectly yeah. it seems to me <laughs> on the spot <laughs> yeah whatever came to mind thank you daryl for your time and and for your generosity in sharing with us your journey. Thank you for listening, Mariette. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And if this episode inspired you, please share it with someone you care about. I'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review Calm, Clear and Helpful where you download your podcasts. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, Mariette Sneeman, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 